0: Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationist podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, a co-founder of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today I have the joy of talking to Scott Buchanan, the state herpetologist with Rhode Island Division of Fish and Wildlife. We're gonna be talking all about the work, the important work he's doing with wood turtles and the uh, starting to touch on some of the work that was done with Christine Hoffman and Julia with their detection dog Newt finding wood turtles a couple years back. I'm super excited to get to this interview but before we dive in we're going to look at our science highlight. Scott recommended that we read um, a Glimpse into the Use of Detection Dogs to Address Global Poaching, overharvesting, and Trafficking of Aquatic Species, which is a chapter from the book, Using Detection Dogs to Monitor Aquatic Ecosystem Health and Protect Aquatic Resources, which was edited by Dr. Niall Richards. This chapter basically goes through several different case studies about different programs used to um, combat trafficking with, these, uh, with detection dogs for aquatic species. So the chapter starts out with a story from B. Braun about a a program that he piloted training detection dogs to find live animals in German airports, which ultimately led to a wildlife detector dog dog workshop with attendants from 13 countries. The chapter then explores traffic, which is a division of WWF India, World Wildlife Fund India. These pages largely focused on the routine and care of the dog within the traffic facility, and then next up, the chapter interviews Lauren Wendt about her work with Benny, her conservation dog, who's trained on aquatic resources, including shark fin. Um, she talked about the criteria before adding new targets, acquisition of targets, and storage. And this is back when Lauren Went was with Washington State. She now is employed at Working Dogs for Conservation alongside Benny. Finally, the chapter examines a case study of using dogs to detect illegally harvested lobster and abalone. This was absolutely my favorite part of the chapter it talked about training dogs to detect the glue that holds eggs to a lobster's tail and then they were able to catch poachers who had neglected to re-release a buried lobster which is a lobster about to lay eggs they found that the dog actually was also able to detect lobsters that had been cleaned lobsters that were about to grow eggs or had just dropped their eggs naturally so really interesting stuff. Again, that chapter can be found. It's chapter seven in the book, Using Detection Dogs to Monitor Aquatic Ecosystem Health and Protect Aquatic Resources, edited by Dr. Nioh Richards. So now it's time to get to our interview with Scott. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Scott. Why don't we start out with, you know, tell us a little bit about how one becomes a herpetologist and, you know, what your background is to get into, uh, get to where you are now.
1: Sure thing. Thanks, Kayla. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, how do you get to be a herpetologist? Well, (laughs) uh, unfortunately, I think it's... Well, for better or worse, put it that way, I think it's there's a high bar of education, so you have to go to school for a really long time. Um, And that's that's my story. Um, Not dissimilar from many in this field. Um, But, uh, yeah, so... You know, I did my undergrad in ecology, kind of general ecology, uh, way back when. I did a master's. I studied hognose snakes um, at Cape Cod National Seashore. studied spatial ecology and habitat selection. And then I had the opportunity to do a Ph.D. at the University of Rhode Island, where I um, studied freshwater turtles occupancy, um, demographics, population, genetics, that kind of thing. Um, and I got really fortunate in that I was able to land a job right across the street from URI working with the Rhode Island division of fish and wildlife where, I'm um, employed currently as a state herpetologist. Um, and yeah, you know, I, it's the kind of thing it requires a lot of education. Um, So I always try to tell people if you're interested in, um, pursuing a career in herpetology or a similar field, get as much experience as you can get as much, take every opportunity to get experience, um, that'll, that'll help you pursue that path.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And was herpetology something you were always interested in as a kid or did it kind of Was it the sort of thing that you had a really impactful undergraduate class or did you just land in a master's program that focused in that direction?
1: Well, my interests were broad growing up. I was always fascinated by amphibians and reptiles. Uh, Certainly, you know, I remember well the first snake I ever saw in the wild when I was a kid. Um, But like, I wasn't the prototypical kid herper necessarily, you know, um, it wasn't until after my undergraduate, I, I, I knew from a young age, I was like, I want to work outdoors. I want to work in conservation, but that could go in many different ways. And, and so undergrad, I studied ecology. I was very interested in conservation, but it wasn't until after undergrad, when I got a volunteer position at Cape Cod National Seashore, Uh, working as a herpetological field tech and um, being immersed in like data collection and uh, inventory and monitoring of amphibians and reptiles in that setting that it really flipped the switch. And um, I worked with, I was fortunate also in that at that same time there were a number of graduate students doing work there um, Mm -hmm. at both the master's and phd level so there was this little like herp conservation community that was there um, and there were some great mentors at at that time in my life and I I hadn't even considered going to grad school at that point I just wanted to go to work Um, but that changed after exposure to you know the work that these other young people were doing and, um, having a great mentor Bob cook who was the park herpetologist at the time. Uh, and I ended up doing a master's there and going back to work seasonally there for six years in a row. Um, and really, wow. you know, felt, fell in love with mm-hmm. not just Cape cod, but Southern new England. I was, my family I grew up in New Jersey for the most part. Um, and yeah, I don't know, one thing led to another, and um, here I am.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And you know, I think always a good reminder that falls, rings uh, true for so many of the careers that our listeners are interested in. It's just, it's it's a lot of education and a lot of taking opportunities, and yeah that that inspiration is so important as well. So, what is what does um a state herpetologist do? What are some of your your goals and, you know, what does your day-to-day look like?
1: Sure. And I'll start by saying almost no two days are alike, um which is good. I like that about the job. Um the quick version is it's all things conservation and management amphibians and reptiles in the state of Rhode Island. That's what I say to people when I don't have time for a deeper description. But, um, when I do, you know, there's, there's like five or six pillars of things that I do in my job or that are sort of the core responsibilities. And, um, one, which is probably the most fun is inventory and monitoring of amphibians and reptiles in the state of Rhode Island. So, you know, we always want to learn more about where our species are um, and the state of their populations so that we can inform conservation and management as much as possible and take into account populations of amphibians and reptiles um, when we can, when, you know, all the things that are going on out there um, are at some decision-making point. Uh, We have about 40 species of amphibians and reptiles in Rhode Island, so that's a lot. You know, that's an endless effort, and things are always changing. Mm -hmm. We're never going to know as much as we want to know, so we have to prioritize. And usually we prioritize learning more about species of conservation concern, threatened and endangered species, vulnerable species, that sort of thing. Um, And that's like doing surveys, that's doing data collection, opportunistically sometimes any source of data is good data try not to turn anything away and try to um, keep track of everything coming in the door so that's one big thing um Mm -hmm. another part of the job is kind of wearing a regulator hat uh so every state has laws and regulations around wildlife and um That's no different with amphibians and reptiles. So on an annual basis, we might be kind of tweaking our regulations to change this or that, or to improve the clarity of the regulations. Um, And then we also have to enforce those regulations um, wherever and whenever possible. So that can be, for me, that can be like doing inspections at a pet store, that can be working oh. with law enforcement if we get a public complaint about uh, someone in possession of wildlife that they shouldn't be in possession of, that sort of thing. Um, and then you have, of course, just habitat management. So, um, you know, every whenever there's habitat management going on, especially on our uh, state lands, you know, um, there's a there's a, a role for me to play in informing those decisions and then you have outreach and education uh working with the public kind of doing things like this you know working to put information out there and inform the public and raise interest by the public and then um what else that, that I think that covers the biggest um yeah. you know pillars of the job but Like I said, it's dynamic, it's changing all the time. There's always things you don't predict that come up and you're putting out brush fires. And um, it's a really interesting and oftentimes fun and rewarding job. So I'm grateful to have that job.
0: Yeah, the variety sounds really, really great. And there's there's so much that's involved that sounds like a very cool job. So pivoting now, we're we're here to talk mostly about wood turtles. Um, So why don't you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what are what are wood turtles? What are they like? What challenges are they facing for someone who maybe hasn't heard of them or maybe has heard of them but couldn't necessarily pick them out of a lineup? Um, What what do we need to know about our wood turtle friends?
1: Sure. Uh, Wood turtles are a really cool species and a lot of my focus in my job and um, stemming from my PhD has to do with turtles more than anything else in my job and That's in part because uh, turtles are so vulnerable, kind of a combination of their biology and um, the risks that they face in the wild. So uh, I've been in this position almost five years, and a lot of my energy has gone towards turtles. Uh, In Rhode Island, wood turtles are one of our most imperiled species, and they are a... um, freshwater turtle, or sometimes referred to as a semi-aquatic turtle, meaning they spend part of their life in freshwater, part of their life in the uplands, Um, they're very much a habitat specialist and they're associated with freshwater streams. um, Okay. Like, typically non-degraded clean water, uh, gravelly, sandy bottom streams. Um... Their geographic range stretches probably from, like, Virginia up into eastern Canada and parts of the Midwest. So they're Uh acclimated to cold weather, for sure. Um, Kind of a a northern species, I would say, in respect to, you know, U.S. geography. (laughs) Um, And they're this beautiful species, I think, the, the, the carapace length, the shell length, probably gets yeah. up to about eight inches. They have sort of like an etched pattern in the scutes of their shell, which uh-huh. gives them their name. They look like they've been etched by wood. Oh, um, cool. And they have like orange coloring on the face. Uh, they are when you come across them typically they're like docile and easy to handle and um just this really cool species and they're very much in peril. so they're um throughout their range and in rhode island you know we're a small state we have a handful of populations we're particularly concerned about them but they're subject to a whole variety of of, of risks and you know it's typical ones it's urban-suburban development, you know, for mm. new homes and construction, um, road mortality, getting hit by cars on, when they're crossing roads. Uh, similarly, with agricultural equipment, um, getting, getting hit by a mower or something like that. Uh, mm. There's always disease risk in reptiles. Um, they're subject to illegal collection. Illegal collection from um, the wild for the pet oh. trade. Uh, and and also habitat degradation because they are a freshwater... Uh, they rely upon a fr- freshwater st- stream specialist. Um, oh, okay. It's easy to degrade a stream. And um, when that occurs, that can make a stream uninhabitable for them. So um, <clears throat> very much like a regional species of conservation concern they're actually being considered for listing under the federal endangered species act right now
0: gotcha. and
1: that decision is pending we're probably going to learn later this year if in fact they um obtain some status and it seems possible that they could at this point gotcha.
0: yeah yeah, so definitely one of those species that they've got a lot of challenges and I think you know, yes. almost any time you hear about a, a habitat specialist <laughs> nowadays that um, yeah. that can't be a good thing um, kind of conservation wise. So what are some of the goals that um, you have in your role as far as researching these wood turtles? Like what are the questions that are still outstanding that are of conserva- conservation importance for them?
1: it it all starts with learning more about the populations we have in rhode island Um, unfortunately we know very little uh, about the species in the state Uh, we can infer based on having collected very little data over the years very little incidental um, very few incidental observations over the years from fish and wildlife staff and other researchers in the state and also the public like we know there's not a ton of them (laughs) and we know a few places where they occur where populations seem to be at least most robust in the state Uh but knowing only that we want we want to know a couple things like there's got to be places they occur that we're missing them and we need to know those places And document those places and have them on record so that when that information can be used to inform conservation and management in any way, it's there. Mm -hmm. And this species can come to the fore and be considered in decision making. And then within those populations, we want to get a sense of how robust they are, how, how um, viable and sustainable are these actual populations. Are there 15 adults left? And these are populations that are on their way towards blinking out? Or are there a couple hundred adults left? And these are strong, viable populations that we should really invest resources to ensure that they're going to be here in 25, 15, a hundred years. And right. so that, the, that, those are the big questions. And like, there's a lot of work needed to get to that point. And that's where surveys come in. Um, and other types of studies too. Like we are currently doing a GPS telemetry study on, uh one of our populations of wood turtles in the state to figure out like how much space do they use around this stream uh what times of year are they in nearby fields uh that sort of thing
0: gotcha could you tell us a little bit more about maybe the telemetry study and then some of the other methods that have kind of traditionally or historically been used for monitoring wood turtles um and maybe as you're going through that if you want to mention anything about kind of the strengths or weaknesses of those techniques before we uh before we dive into the dog stuff.
1: Sure, sure. I'll start with telemetry and then I'll talk about surveys, more traditional survey techniques. The telemetry, uh, we are using GPS tags, which is exciting because they can produce so much more data than typical radio uh, telemetry. Radio telemetry requires that a researcher go out in the field and physically find the animal hone in on it using the radio signal, and then take a location of that animal. Um, GPS, these tags that we're using, are taking like nine locations a day. Oh, wow. Um, So you're getting an order of magnitude more data. And that allows us, when we're studying them, to just gain a much better understanding of their typical ecology spatial ecology, habitat use yeah. activity.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so it's an exciting study. We're doing it on one of our most robust populations. We've got... We're, to, we're scheduled to be a two-year study. We started last year. We'll collect data again this year. Um, on all adult turtles, they have to be a certain size so that you can epoxy these transmitters on their shell. Um, we've got... Um, 50 50 roughly 50 50 adult females and males mm-hmm. um about 20 turtles each year we'll be tracking and it was you know there's always bumps in the road when you start a research project but we've smoothed out most of those bumps now we're we're getting really good reliable data we understand the data and sort of the um you know any any caveats associated with the data And we're feeling really good about it. And again, it's going to inform management especially. So this study is taking place on conservation land in Rhode Island. And it's conservation land that's subject to all sorts of human use, um, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, hiking, camping, all that sorts of stuff, Um, and, and some habitat management as well. V- vehicle traffic so we feel like it's going to inform us to say okay you know during these times years in these areas let's be as hands-off as possible to make sure that we're not uh, mowing wood turtles or disturbing wood turtles yeah. or subjecting them to vehicle traffic that sort of thing and that's you know that's it's applied research so it's valuable Mm -hmm. On the survey side, um, a typical approach to surveying is what was some form of what's referred to as visual encounter surveys,
0: and that's exactly Uh what
1: it sounds like. That's a, a group, an individual or a small group of people in the field kind of walking a transect in some systematic way, whether it's in the stream or immediately adjacent to the stream and trying, hoping to bump into a wood turtle to see one with your eyes and then collect data on it. And, uh, that's effective. It works. Um, but it's very much, a uh, it, it, you have to invest a lot of time typically <laughs> in order to, um, encounter enough wood turtles to understand a population on on the level that we want to understand the population. Um, And it's a lot of, you know, it's a a lot of physical labor too. It requires just a lot of people out there uh, doing the work. And there is, there's a regional effort spurred in part by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's desire to learn more about the species, to inform their decision-making process for the ESA. Uh, There's a regional effort among all the states in the Northeast to do these types of surveys in a coordinated fashion. So for the last few years, um, most of the states have been conducting that type of survey, which um, I just described, a visual encounter survey. Yep.
0: What yep. Uh, what does the um, like the vegetation cover look like there? And um, <laughs> it kind of remind me how big these turtles are because this seems like a very challenging visual survey setup.
1: It, yeah, it can be. I mean, they're they're smaller turtles for sure. These ones are I get to about eight inches okay. shell length. You know, so that's like a reasonable <laughs> search image, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but you know, just like. A lot of species, they're evolved to blend in with their environment. They they rely on being cryptic in order to avoid predation in many cases. So when they're in a stream, uh, they don't look all that much different than a rock. So yeah. they're easy to miss when they're in the stream. And you're talking about flowing water where... Um, you know, vision is kind of obscured when you're looking through the water. And that's only in a stream that's shallow enough to see through. Of course, right. they can be yeah. in uh, deeper streams or, or darker streams. And a lot of times, streams are... Um, there's either sediment or the water's really tannic, so you can't see through it that well. And then when they're in the uplands, and, and just, to, just a little bit more on their sort of, like, history, for a portion of the year they're in the streams and that's typically like fall through the spring. They're overwintering in the streams. And then both the males and the females will come out of the streams. um, Usually like, I don't know, mid spring or so and through the summer Uh and um, spend time both in the stream and outside of the stream and the habitat adjacent to the streams uh, to forage. The females have to nest um, kind of just estivate, like chill out and relax and <laughs> conserve energy okay. um, to to thermoregulate to bring their body temperature up so that their metabolism can kick in and they can grow all that sort of stuff um, and now when they're in the uplands, you know, habitat the, the vegetation varies widely in southern New England you're talking typically about reforested areas. So secondary forest, which can mean a lot of different things, but um, it's usually like a canopy forest, um, mixed hardwoods and softwood species, and some level of understory, you know, of, of shrubs and vegetation at the ground layer cover is important for them. They can go under leaf litter or they can just kind of bury themselves in a grass or, um, thick vegetation to hide. And then another important component of that vegetation is, um, fields. A lot of there's, (laughs) there's just a typical like matrix of habitats in my part of the world is like forest and field. And the field is agriculture or, um, Kept in grassland for habitat management purposes or something like that. And those fields provide good opportunities for thermal regulation and they provide good opportunities for nesting for the female. So we oftentimes um, find wood turtles, we oftentimes find box turtles right at the edge of that forest Whoa. and field.
0: Canine Conservationists is thrilled to offer a self-study online class for those interested in joining the field of conservation dog professionals. This course includes 18 modules of video lecture, assigned reading, homework, and quizzes. We have lectures from 10 amazing guest instructors, including Fostering Motivation and Joy through High Deplacement Training with Laura Holder of Conservation Dogs Collective, Safety Training and Assessments of Dog Teams with guests Fiona Jackson and Tracy Litton of Skyless Ecology, Special considerations for insect and plant training samples with Arden Blumenthal of the New York, New Jersey Trail Conference, and building networks and acquiring clients with Paul Bunker. Our alumni group is active and supportive, and we welcome students of all levels and backgrounds. The course is priced at $750 with generous financial aid and discounts available for Patreon members. Learn more and sign up at canineconservationist.org slash class. Gotcha. So you've been doing, you know, these visual surveys for a while, and then some of the GPS surveys, but we've got you here because we're a conservation dog podcast, and you have done some work with um, wood turtles and conservation detection dogs. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where that project came about, um, and kind of how how that idea came up, even?
1: Yeah, I would love to. Um, We were approached by a professor at St. Lawrence University, Chris Hoffman, um, Chris has been working with dogs for some time and we had published, uh, a small article about a graduate student at the university of Rhode Island doing wood turtle visual encounter surveys. Chris saw that article and, uh, gave us a call and said, would you be interested in having a dog come down to do wood turtle surveys? And this is, this is in, um, coordination with another professor at URI, Nancy Carricker, who I work with uh, very closely in my my capacity on a number of projects. And Nancy and I jumped at that opportunity. We said, yeah, absolutely. That could be really productive. It could be really interesting. Let's give it a go. And so we set things up. Um, Chris had an undergraduate student come down to Rhode Island for a couple months and lead the project. That student was Julia, Julia Serwa. Saroy Um, and pretty much from, you know, we spent a little bit of time training the dog to get the dog acclimated to the Rhode Island environment and to further train the dog on wood turtles. And before we knew it, they were often and running and they were finding wood turtles and that dog newt, um, was our our sort of mascot superhero um, in short order. He was really effective at finding wood turtles and box turtles. He would would oftentimes come across box turtles in shared habitat, which is also great data. Um, And we kind of set things up so that there was a degree of... uh, of, of a systematic approach to the surveys, uh-huh. um, we focused Newt and Julia in on a few populations, a f- on, on three areas where we knew there were wood turtles um, and we wanted to learn more about those populations of wood turtles. So in other words, let's bring Newt out and have him do surveys and let's have him find as many wood turtles at these three populations as possible. And... Uh-huh. Newt proved really effective at that yeah that's great to hear in short order yeah
0: yeah so were you out in the field with Julia and Newt much at all or were you um stuck uh working on other projects during during kind of field work
1: (laughs) I'm oftentimes stuck working on other projects uh it's hard to in this role it's hard to like dedicate as much energy as I want to any one project. I was there yeah. in the initial stages, um, uh-huh. you know, to meet the team and meet new and get a sense of uh, what new could do. So, and, and of course had to acclimate the team too to the sites and um, make sure everything was running smoothly. So I, I spent some time in the field um, observing you uh-huh. and observing Julia and learning from Julia and Chris about, the dog and dog surveys um but for the most part julia and the dog and we also had another uri undergraduate student uh noah goldthwaite he was helping the team um and for the most part they worked independently you know and i i had to train them up on how to collect data from turtles too when they find turtles and and julia and noah took right to that and they did a great job with collecting data from turtles and they generated a you know a significant data set they found i think they found 21 individuals thereabouts it was about 20 individuals um using newt that's just wood turtles they also did some box turtle work uh which was you know i mean that for reference that was in they did that in a couple months we also had a graduate student at URI who had done who who completed 2 years of visual encounter surveys and that's doing a lot more that's investing a lot more time over those 2 years doing a, a lot of other sites and granted Sites where we didn't know the status of wood turtles. We didn't know if they were there or not. Sure. That was more about figuring out where they were. Um, mm-hmm. And that was Chloe Johnson. And she did a she did a great job with her project. But in all that time, she only found, I want to say, less than 30 wood turtles. Like uh, around 25. Wow. So yeah. you're talking comparable amounts of data uh, in a two-month period as compared to a two-year period, yeah. uh, two months yeah. using the dog uh, as two years without the dog, which is, you know, it's, yeah. it's a little bit of comparing apples to oranges. There were differences there uh, in, in the approach and, and whatnot, but nonetheless, I mean, it screams to me, hey, this dog is really effective at finding wood turtles, um, mm-hmm. and there's a real future for these types of surveys using dogs.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think in one of the things that I know I've heard, I think Heat Smith from Rogue Detection Team says this often as a reminder that when you do have a dog team out there, you're also not just relying on the dog. Um, and I think sometimes we have this tendency to compare human-only searchers to dog teams as if dog teams don't also involve a human searcher. Um, and obviously depending on, um, kind of the terrain and the risks involved, the, the handler may not be, may have to focus almost entirely on the dog, but I've also certainly been in situations where I have found stuff as I've been handling the dog. It's not that the handler is dead weight. Um,
1: right. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's a really good point.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Well, um, so what were some of your kind of questions or hesitations, um, Initially, when um, Chris reached out to you, had you heard of detection dogs before? Had this been something you'd even considered? Did you think she was crazy? Did you think the dog was looking like <laughs> turtles? <laughs>
1: um, what yeah. The yeah that, those things Types of questions came to the fore, you know, early on. We asked those questions of Chris. Is there any risk to the, to the target animal? Uh, these are really sensitive species. Yeah, they have a shell, but they're subject to disturbance and injury. Uh, and she was quick to dispel those fears. Um, and we didn't see anything like that. You know, there's, Newt was well-trained and uh-huh. was not aggressive towards any animal and would just lie down when he found a turtle um other initial concerns and questions we had were just like around logistics you know um we had to try to set this up in short order and i had heard of dogs as uh turtle detectors before and usually in the light that they were good at finding turtles Mm -hmm. but um you still have to figure out all the logistics you have to figure out how are we gonna use the dog team most efficiently? Uh, we have an ongoing turtle survey project in the state. Uh, how are we gonna coordinate with those surveys and not disrupt those surveys? Um, and, you know, we just, we, we figured it would be a challenge, but we went for it anyway, and it was really rewarding in the end.
0: Yeah, yeah, that I'm glad that, I'm glad that you were open to it. And that's always one of the things that you know, it's it's challenging in this field as a practitioner to figure out how and when to approach the right people and the right projects, and mm-hmm. you know, really prove the dog's worth. And I'm glad that that Newt and Julia and Chris um, continued to demonstrate that level of professionality and uh, yeah, did a did a really really good job. It sounds like. So, is there? Do you have any hopes for con- uh, returning to work with? with dogs? Do you have the data that you feel like you need? Um, What is kind of, what are your thoughts as far as the future of Rhode Island uh, uh, wood turtle detection dogs?
1: Well, I I am very much open to continuing the work. You know, when we first spoke with Chris, I was open-minded and optimistic, but also, you know, cautiously optimistic. Um, I had never seen dogs in practice in this capacity before. And my mind did change over that short period working with them, just a couple months. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm certain, you know, I I feel very confident, I should say, that uh, working with dogs can generate more data than relying strictly on visual encounter surveys. And therefore, I think there's a real place for turtle detector dogs um, in conservation and management. There's always going to be a need for more data, you know, more inventory monitoring data. And if, um, you know, research teams, state fish and wildlife agencies, um, wildlife, you know, land conservation NGOs, if they can – use this practice to learn more about turtles and other wildlife, hard to find wildlife on their lands. um, It's going to benefit their ability to do conservation and management. Uh, I would, we don't have any plans right now um, to work with Chris again, but of course I'd be open to that. Um, I think that, If I were to institute sort of a regular, um, using dogs regularly in this capacity, it would take a bit of work on my end and I'd have to convince some people um, to set aside funding to do that. But, um, you know, again, I'm really confident that the results would speak for themselves. And I think that, you know, there's, I say I'm, I'm very confident just shy of certain and the only reason is because i'm a scientist and like i want to see an experimental design and i want to see a statistically different um result um in order to be certain and the data we have it's strong but it's preliminary you know it's it's not that degree of um There's not that degree of of certainty, I guess, but it's very strong preliminary evidence. And it's something that would also be worth pursuing at the sort of academic and research level. Like let's demonstrate, let's prove that dogs in an experimentally sound way, let's prove that dogs are, or a dog team is uh, more efficient at finding turtles.
0: Yeah. I would imagine so. And there may still, I think, and I think it's important for all of us to, to be open, open-minded open and honest, too, about, you know, okay, well, maybe we find that during certain times of the year, based on turtle behavior or um, uh, kind of olfactory, ch- or olfactory changes due to hormone levels, dogs are more or less mm-hmm. efficient at certain times of the year. I know there have been past um, findings yep. with detector dogs you know potentially struggling more than would be expected in specific studies I think that's where continuing to do so much of this research is really helpful as well even if we can feel really confident that dogs on dog teams are going to be useful that's still really worth investigating okay but you know what time of year what behavioral things may be going on with the target species that makes it more or less easy you know as a a different example, we were just completing our field work in Guatemala and um, we're realizing that we weren't collecting as we as far as we know, we didn't really collect nearly as much Margay scat as we had kind of hoped that the dogs would be able to help fill in that gaps, that gap. And then, you know, through more conversations, it's just kind of like, well, there's actually a really good chance that most of the Margay scat is gonna be way up in the trees and the dogs they're not the right tool to solve that particular problem. So they solved a lot of other problems for that project but the dogs are unlikely to come in and, you know, fix the Marguerite scat collection problem. And I think that's mm-hmm. always something mm-hmm. to, to, that it's really important to be honest and open-minded about those things as practitioners, because dogs are not the perfect tool for every single job.
1: Yep. I, I completely agree. They're, they're a tool. They're um, a strong tool potentially, but any tool needs to be optimized for the task at hand and, that's a, 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 a great point, and it's something that in an academic research setting could be investigated.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, we're going to be doing a follow-up episode with Chris and Julia to talk more about Newt and what went into his training and the actual fieldwork. work. But um, as we're wrapping up here, Scott, I'd love to hear if you had any other final points or takeaways or maybe um, great stories from the field that you wanted to be sure to share with our listeners before we before we go
1: one thing i would love to uh mention is how popular newt was very quickly (laughs) Uh (laughs) in the press in rhode island and beyond um as soon as the media learned that we were using a dog to find turtles they were tripping over themselves to get in touch with us and uh see newton action and interviewed julia and noah and um some others involved in the project i should also mention um roger williams park zoo and the director of conservation there lou parati he played a really important um role in this project He, he studied wood turtles in the state in the past and was a real supporter of this project um and so that was an unforeseen benefit uh all that positive press you know um, oh yeah as Mm -hmm. a as a government employee uh getting your agency out there in a good light is a really valuable thing um and you know newt was the catalyst for that there's no question
0: we've talked a little bit um in a couple different areas about the uh, the fact that because uh, dogs are charismatic megafauna in a way, they can bring this sure. positive media attention and focus to projects that might otherwise escape that sort of attention and focus. You know, when you're working on zebra mussel projects or eradication of yeah. an invasive plant or even surveys yeah. on some sort of endangered plant, it's just it can be hard to get people excited about that. And I think turtles fall somewhere above invasive plants, for sure, as far as charisma. but. um, you know, for the general public, they're certainly not um, koalas or pandas, um, but Correct. dogs can yep. really help bring, help bring that charisma factor up. And again, that's not the main point, but it's certainly um, a benefit. Well, Scott, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up or anything that maybe you wanted to ask me before we go here?
1: I just think there's a ton of potential here.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree. To use
1: dogs and turtle conservation, you know,
0: yeah well and i think even there's a lot of potential to be using dogs more more consistently and on a staff level yes. whether it's on yes. in you know state federal national county government or within some of these larger preserves or coalitions um i think you know personally there's a lot of reasons that i uh, i have a love-hate relationship with this contractor-based model but i think they're there could be a lot more long-term benefit and a lot more long-term data that comes out of figuring out more ways to have dog teams on staff within uh, given agencies or NGOs. Um, so I'm excited that that's something that, you know, I think the more we work with agent- with these agencies, the more they might be able to start seeing that. And I hope it's something that I see more of in my lifetime.
1: Here, here, Yeah. <laughs> and that raises the issue of illegal trade and wildlife yeah. trafficking. and I think that, you know, hopefully that, that's a whole nother podcast, but um, there's certainly uh, a need for greater institutional capacity, agency capacity using dogs, yeah. not just relying on contractors to do it um, in, in that sector, because yes. there's so much <laughs> being shipped in and out of the country <laughs> all the time. Yep. And x-ray machines can't get to it at all. Dogs are really good at detecting um, uh, concealed wildlife as well. They
0: really, really are. And again, it's the sort of thing where I think potentially, you know, you get a dog on staff so that they can do a couple months a year of field work on wood turtles, but then you've got the dog and the handler on staff. You might as well spend mm-hmm. a couple months working on, um, you know, I don't know if there's a peak season for specific types of trafficking. I'm sure it depends on what's being trafficked, but You know, once you've got Mm -hmm. these dogs around, then they're just become, there are just more and more opportunities to leverage them. And these dogs love the work and want to work. And if you're strategic about what you're Mm -hmm. teaching them to do, um, you can have dogs working on different, you know, a different project every month almost. Mm -hmm. Interesting. yeah yeah it's definitely something again i'd just love to be seeing more of and i think there are some groups already doing a really good job of that and those were you know highlighted in that book chapter that we sent uh that we highlighted at the beginning of the podcast um mm-hmm. and again i think we're we're in an exciting mm-hmm. place as an industry and i'm 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 really grateful for folks like you who are um open to working with dogs and excited to see where this can go and i'm glad that um you know julia and newt were so helpful um and I hope that these, I hope that we keep hearing good news about our wood turtle friends. We're, you know, we're all rooting for them, whether we're actually actively working on them or not.
1: It's good to hear. Good to hear. And likewise, keep up the important work that you're doing. Um, I think that there's, there's a clear path here for more work in the future with dogs and conservation. And um, I hope that your work um, results in more dogs working in conservation.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, thank you. And um, for everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find show notes, donate to Canine Conservationists, join our Patreon, or sign up for our online handler course at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.